We return this morning to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Father, there is no doubt this morning that the text lands on a very sobering note of warning, a note of warning that takes us back to the Old Testament man Esau and his uh, rather interesting brother Jacob and the way in which that scenario played out in your will for blessing for glory, for Christ, for the gospel. We pray today that you would help us as we work in this text to be prepared to receive the warning at the end of it and to appropriate that warning for our own souls and for the souls of others. We ask your blessing upon us at study this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. We pick back up this morning at verse 15. And the words, looking diligently. The Bible uses the word look to direct us to the mirror of God's word for truth and honest self-discovery. Most of us are familiar with the way that James speaks about looking into the mirror of the word of God and uh, seeing ourselves, as it were, correctly. The Bible also uses the word look in this very chapter, chapter 12, previously, verse 2, to direct us to the perfect example of the Lord Jesus in trusting and doing God the Father's will. But neither of those are the thrust of the looking diligently here, which is simply to be understood as see to it. The two words, looking diligently, one word in the original, and the plain meaning of that word is see to it. The root meaning, see to it, is also one of three root words used to describe the office of a pastor. Now that is a connection that you would not normally think. But the under-shepherd or pastor is likewise referred to as the elder 
and the bishop. The word from which the term bishop comes is the Greek word, see to it. The pastor is a man who sees to it. The deacons are men who see to it. See to what? Well, in that particular case, I think we would have to talk about the responsibility to make sure that when God's people come together, that God is the center of our attention. And if leadership are not purposeful to see to it, that God is the center of attention, well then, who knows what people might bring with them when they come? Who knows what goofy thing they read? Who knows what goofy thing they heard? Who knows what goofy thing was experienced? Who knows what people might bring to the gathering of God's people if there aren't somebody in charge of seeing to it? Seeing that God's name, seeing that God's honor be first and foremost in the gathering of the people. Pastors are those men called of God to watch over souls, the souls of a local flock. But they do not, they do not watch out for souls alone. As we see it here in 1215, all believers in the race of faith are to look diligently. All believers are to watch diligently or to see to it. And what exactly are all believers charged here to see to it, to take care of, to make it a sense of personal responsibility? Well, we're talking about watching out and paying attention to the spiritual development of your teammates. We're talking about seeing to it that you not only pay attention to your own spiritual growth and development in the Lord, that it be forward motion, but that you see to it in the life of others who name and claim the Lord Jesus Christ. We in Christ are to be overseers. The pastoral term, episkopos, is translated bishop. And it stresses the pastor's oversight in regards to the local church family. But the exact same root word is found in the verb form here for all believers to see to it or to exercise oversight in running and finishing the race of faith. We are to so run so that not only we finish, Well, the race that God has set before us, but that others finish well the race that is set before them. The danger is not paying attention to the race of faith being run all around you by your brothers and sisters in Christ, your teammates. They may well fall down. They may well get injured. They may well fail to finish altogether. And you and I are herein duly warned concerning the fact that we are to see to our own sense of development in the Lord, our own sense of the pursuit of holiness before God and peace with all men. But we are to see to it in relationship 
one to another. After the clear statement that all believers are to aggressively pursue peace with all men and holiness before God, verse 14, we now find in verse 15 three common ways in which some may fall and fail. Your concern as a believer in Jesus is herein prescribed and beyond yourself. Herein the Lord prescribes for you a responsibility to see to it in relationship to others. In pursuit of peace and holiness, the child of God must not fail to acknowledge the grace of God. 15a, looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God. Failing the grace of God, verse 15a. The word fail was seen previously in our study in Hebrews, back at chapter 4, verse 1, concerning those that would come short or lack in regards to a promise of God left them in living experience. Both salvation and sanctification are made possible and real by the grace of God. Saved by the grace of God, we develop in the Lord by the grace of God. Even the believer's command to pursue holiness is founded upon the fact that God will finish that which he has begun in us. It is not enough that we as individuals should be understanding and dependent upon the grace of God for personal salvation. We must be understanding and dependent upon the grace of God for personal sanctification. And we are to look out for others who are racing around us as to their understanding and dependence upon the grace of God for salvation and for sanctification. Surely in sanctification I am to present myself as cooperative with God, as active in the process, even as indicated by the command looking diligently even by looking to that idea of see to it. Uh, But nonetheless, the preaching point is sola gratia. Uh, We, by faith, pursue holiness, knowing that it is not by our efforts or achievements that the race is finished, but by the grace of God. So the first little prong here of a way in which a believer can fall or a believer can fail is by not keeping your eyes focused upon the grace of God. The grace of God. Secondly, in pursuit of peace and holiness, the child of God must not fail to address troubling things often allowed. 15b, any root of bitterness springing up. 15b, the horticultural verb springing up depicts the sprouting and crowding out and choking off of a plant by a weed. The bitter root or poison root pops up in the soil of the heart and crowds out or chokes off the believer's praise and thanksgiving for grace and gifts of God as received. Uh, There is a historical precedent to this idea of the bitter root. And I want you to see that 
in the Old Testament. Go with me, as it were, to Deuteronomy chapter 29. And I'll read verses 13 and 14, or I should say 12 and 13, as a setup. And then we'll jump down to verse 18. But verse 12, uh, Deuteronomy 29, 12. Moses instructing the uh, generation of Israelis that indeed are going to enter into the promised land without him, under Joshua, without the aspect of their mother and their father and their, and their uncle and their aunt and their grandma and their grandpa who died during the wilderness wanderings as prescribed by God. But as the generation stands uh, at the doorway into Cana land, into the promised land, uh, uh, God through Moses says this, that thou shouldest enter into the covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be seen or he may be unto thee a God, as he has said unto thee, and as he has sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 18, verse 18. Lest there should be among you a man, or woman, or family, or tribe, whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of these nations lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood, bitterness, if you will. And it come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he blesseth himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart to add drunkenness, to thirst. Kind of a strange statement, but the Lord is speaking through Moses to the ancient nation of Israel and saying, you need to pay attention to yourself, and you need to pay attention to your brother, and you need to pay attention to your sister, and you need to pay attention to your family, and you need to pay attention to your tribe. Because on any one of those levels, there can sprout up an error, a poison a weed in the midst of uh, 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 the life that then begins to contaminate and corrupt, as it were, uh, a greater sense of others all around it. In other words, we could say it from a gardening perspective, one weed allowed is too many weeds. And so we are told that we can fail in our seeing to it, if we don't constantly keep the grace of God before our minds, we must never, ever allow ourselves the thought, man, am I doing good for God today? No, our thought should be, thank you, Lord, that I'm doing good today. It's only by your grace that I'm doing good today. If left to myself, I wouldn't be doing good today. I should not ever bring any issue of my salvation, any issue of my sanctification as anything other than forward motion by the grace of God, forward motion by the grace of God, forward motion by the grace of God. And I should see to it that I don't allow any roots, any weeds 
Another way to say that, as the old-timer did in my day as a boy, uh, keep short accounts. When you have something in your life that you know isn't quite right, deal with it. Deal with it quick. Get to God with that thing. Don't let it grow. Don't let it fester. Don't let it develop. See to it that there is no sense of a root of bitterness, a root of, of, of poison, a root of error that crops up in you. Moses said that if you don't deal with them, that what happens then is that, uh, is that uh, drinking becomes drunkenness. And he warns them of a harm in such closet ritual and religionists who could not only influence themselves negatively away from God, but frankly away from the congregation. One of the scariest things, one of the scariest things about the depiction in Deuteronomy 29 is that the person is deliberately turning away from the plain word of God to, quote, the imagination of their own thinking. They're making up their God stuff for themselves and thinking themselves to be okay. Wow. The roots of deception are certainly indicated in that statement. Some thought to be loyal to Yahweh among the nation of Israel would indeed prove to be worshipers of idols and think to have peace and holiness in their own way and according to their own imagination. Likewise, we must watch over our own souls and the souls of others. What are we talking about? Well, I do believe that we are talking about two things, one of which has always been kind of there in this entire section of Hebrews, starting way back at chapter 6, but is not the primary concern as stated, and that concern is apostasy. The concern that I think is the primary concern in chapter 6 and moving forward uh, into the very section of which we're working is the problem of apathy. Two problems. Apostasy, ever at issue among the people of God, and apathy, ever at issue among the people of God. Apostasy is, of course, that error that is revealed in which a person is known to never have truly trusted in the Lord. They prove themselves to be the idolater. They prove themselves to be the unregenerate and unsaved man. But as we've said again and again and again and again in Hebrews, beginning back at chapter 6, the primary concern of the writer is not that the Hebrews weren't saved, but that they had grown cold and apathetic. And as a result, were living low and carnal lives and would miss the reality of, of God's reward. And so they are to be told uh, uh, certainly to beware of departure. Departure is the word for apostasy. But right from the get-go, going all the way back to chapter 6, uh, we're, we're being warned of dullness. Always and ever, in the context of any identifiable group, 
of believers like this one. There is indeed a concern that one or two of our number be not the Lord's. Haven't really embraced Christ. Truly are not saved. But that was not the, the primary concern of the writer of Hebrews. The primary concern of the writer of the Hebrews was that the people that profess Christ had become dull, not sharp, had become dull and lethargic and apathetic in responses to the Lord. And as a result of that, would suffer personally. And one thing about apathy is that it's catchy. It's an amazing thing to be a pastor and to stand on this side of the pulpit and to watch as somebody up here yawns and then soon after somebody over there yawns and then soon after somebody over there yawns and then somebody way in the back is yawning. And uh, it's almost as if yawning is catchy. To look at it, to watch it happening before your eyes, when you're up here, is that uh, it almost looks like, like yawning is a catchy disease. And there are certain uh, Sunday mornings that, uh, uh, that yawning would be, uh, would be a big deal and, uh, and, and prolific among the aspect of the congregation. And so you could, you could illustrate this passage by saying, don't spiritually yawn because your spiritual yawns are catchy. And when you're yawning, then what happens is other people tend to yawn. And the influence of that is great. Don't allow any root of bitterness. Keep a short account. Deal with things quickly before the Lord so as to never, to never, to never, to be a negative influence on others, let alone uh, to not be engaged in that particular way yourself. And by the way, for the three of you that have yawned in this service, you're, it's okay. I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm not trying to say anything evil of you. Yawning is a, is a thing. And every once in a while, sleeping is a thing. And uh, I say this, if you come to church and you sleep, chances are you need the rest. I don't feel bad about that. And uh, chances are I'll get cranked up in a moment, say something loud enough to get you back. So anyhow, I am not terribly worried about it. If you need to take a little nap, feel free. Just feel free. Take a little nap. Okay with me. But that yawning thing, it's catchy. That's my point. Don't allow a spiritual yawn in your life, let it, let, lest it become catchy. And then thirdly, and I am rushing because we've got a lot here to get through. We haven't considered Esau yet. In pursuit of peace and holiness, the child of God must not fail to avoid the stains of conscience. We find at the very end of verse 15 and 15c the word defiled. Stained, contaminated, corrupted. Note here the connection between any root, any one root, and many defiled. Any root, many defiled. One error allowed, many stains, corruptions. One apostate can defile or stain many other people. 
by their error and falsity. One carnal believer, one apathetic believer can defile many other people by their self-serving attitude and pride. We surely ought to be concerned about spiritual departure, but we likewise must be concerned about spiritual dullness. Long before the person departs from the Lord, they are dull towards the Lord. As a believer in Christ, you must always acknowledge the grace of God, address every bitter root, and avoid the stains of conscience by pride and self-serving. Watch out for your teammates. Some of them may actually be serving the opposition. Exhort all to run the faith race until finished. Don't presume upon an individual's faith. One of the great dilemmas that Sherry and I identify with grandparents, and we are grandparents, and one of the great dilemmas of grandparents is their chosen naivety. Grandparents often choose to be naive. Sherry and I hear a lot of grandparents that just say crazy, goofy things like, all our grandkids are saved. (coughs) You sure? First, are you sure about yourself? And then, are you sure about your son and your daughter? And would you really say all? I've heard a lot of grandparents say such goofball things as if they mean it and as if they know it. First of all, I don't know, no, for sure, about anybody's salvation. And there have been some individual people over the 45-plus years of gospel ministry that I've been engaged that have clearly uh, uh, caused my mind great consternation because of the inconsistency in which I know what they said they believed, and yet I also know how they behaved. And you and I are inclined, for the sake of family love on earth, to look the other way. And the scripture is very clear, we should never allow our souls to do that. It doesn't mean that we live in skepticism and doubt. But it does mean that we're always praying and always looking for sincerity of heart and life in all of those that we love. And never presuming upon the fact that they are the Lord's. I have so many people tell me that their son is saved, their grandson is saved, their granddaughter is saved, and they do not bear any fruit therein. Be careful. Look diligently. See to it that those around you are confronted with the truths of Christ and confronted with the truths of Christ and confronted with the truths of Christ. Like a family at the beach that says, all our kids can swim. 
Don't worry about life preservers. Don't worry about paying great attention because all our kids can swim. Yeah, well, the kid that just drowned can swim, but he didn't on that day. God help us not to be spiritually stupid concerning our own families and concerning the church family. We should not presume upon each other's okay before God. We all know how easy it is to fake. God's word tells us to see to it that we keep talking about the grace of God, emphasizing the truths of sovereign grace, that we see to it as it relates to letting uh, no root of bitterness spring up among us and see to it that we do not allow any sense of defilement, stains to be allowed within the context of our lives or those that we love around us. It is by the grace of God we are saved and by the grace of God we are trained to keep running having given us many Old Testament examples of living faith in chapter 11, and the ultimate example of living faith found in Jesus Christ our Lord, chapter 12, verse 2. The apostle now cites a single bad example for us to think upon. Esau is our bad example. His life is a warning to us not to live for the lesser things, the things that are available to us all around us in the world, but to live for the things that are available to us by the will and grace of God. We live in a day when many people say, Lord, 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 Lord. But they do not the things that he says. They may talk high, but they live low. You and I should be very suspicious of that. You and I should not have the thought that God is just going to, as the heavenly grandfather, look the other way. Esau's life is a warning to us not to live for the lesser things of life all around us, the good life. Don't live your life for the good of here and now. Live your life for the things of, a, of heaven. Live your life for the affections above, where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. That's what's available to you. That's what's available to me by the grace of God. Esau is described in these verses very negatively. It says, lest there be a fornicator. By the way, verse 15, lest any man fail, lest any root of bitterness, lest there be. Lest, lest, lest. See the grammatical connection? Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat or food sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Esau is described as immoral and profane. He disobeyed God by taking two Hittite wives. He sold his family birthright 
to Jacob for a quick lunch. He made poor life choices again and again and again. If you were to talk about talk to Esau he, about God, he'd be able to tell you all kinds of things about God. He'd be able to answer all of your God questions. But when it came to the will of his life, when it came to the choices that he made, when it came to the way that he lived, it was all earthly. It was all earthly. It was all earthly. He made poor life choices again and again because his life was dictated by the cravings of the flesh. He was a man for the moment. He lived like there was no such thing as yesterday or tomorrow. He was a man who lived for today. Then after a lifetime of feeding his flesh and living to please himself, he woke up. But it was too little and too late. He wanted Isaac to give his inheritance back, and he sought that inheritance tearfully, yet without any real repentance. He never did change his mind about the way that he lived. He just wanted Isaac to change his mind about giving him the inheritance. He was rejected. He was disapproved to receive the inheritance. Esau is a good example of a bad example. Because as Warren Worsby says it, he was a congenial fellow, a good hunter, and a man that was loved by his father. I've often said to you, when it comes to personality, when it comes to manly bent, I like Esau. I view Jacob as a weenie. <laughs> and I don't like weenies. I like a man's man. I like the hunter. I like the football player. I don't like the weenie. And Jacob was a weenie. But Esau, listen, Esau was never really personally interested in the things of God. He wanted God's blessing, but he cared not for God at all. He is very much like the host of people associated with the name of Jesus Christ today. They want the Lord's blessing. They do not want the Lord. Our buddy John MacArthur says, we must be vigilant so that no one turns from the truth, becomes bitter, or follows the course of selfish Esau who wanted God's blessings desperately, but on his own terms. End quote. Esau is surely one that loved this world. And as the Apostle John tells us, we know then that the love of the Father was not in him. And so, taken in the whole, Hebrews 12, 12 to 17 says, Get your hands up, get your knees up, stay the course, seek to run a peaceful and clean race. Watch out for your teammates. Because if you do those things, then you'll be able to say with other saints like the Apostle Paul, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. 
I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. And so again, this morning we say, we got to talk about Jesus. We got to talk about the grace of the Lord. We got to talk about faith in the Lord. We got to talk about loving him back who loved us first. Again and again and again. Oh, Father, help us to be a responsive people to the truth of thy word this morning. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.